We're going to be looking at Genesis 24. Um, If you'll open your pew Bibles to page 20, the ESV pew Bible, and you may have looked and turned the page and noticed that this is 67 verses. Well, there have been worse things to have been done in a church than reading the scriptures. Uh, I will summarize uh, a section, so we're not, but I'll read a lot of it. So, Bruce has already prayed helpfully for us. Let's read God's word together, Genesis chapter 24. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman who, to whom I shall ask, please let me let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Then she had finished giving him a drink. She said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. 
So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed one of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And they said, speak on. Now, verses 34 to 49 is a speech by Abraham's servant. And he's essentially saying Abraham is rich and he's given everything that he has to his only son, Isaac. Uh, he is seeking a wife for him. Uh, here's what I prayed at the well. And, uh, and then Rebecca came down after my prayer in response to it. And then we pick up in verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. 
Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Quite a lot there. Um, Now, there are people who will take that passage and make it essentially a uh, how-to-find-your-mate sermon. I remember growing up and uh, when my brother and I were sort of high school, college age, and dad would ask us, have you found a woman who will water your camels? (laughs) And all of our friends thought that this was some strange Arabic euphemism, which I suppose it is. But if, you know, if someone were to be preaching a, a text like this, I mean, they've got all the, all the citations here. You, you, you put yourself in a place where, where you're going to meet the right people. Verse 11, uh, now, you can't confuse going down to the village well for going to a bar. That's, that's unacceptable. But you commit this thing to prayer, verses 12 and 13, and you pray specifically, verse 14, and then you give thanks to God, verses 26 and 27, and then you meet the family, verses 28 through 51, and that will help you interpret some of the oddities that might come up in your marriage later on, helping you understand the family. Well, I think that's a pretty helpful way to know that that's not the way that we interpret Genesis 24. So the question is, what is happening in these 67 verses? If we had to distill this situation down, it appears that God's promises have run into yet another obstacle. God's promise, not just for Abraham, but for the nations of the world, have hit yet another snag. Because everything that we read about Abraham, always behind it we are reading Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. Leave your land, I will make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That is behind every story that we read about Abraham in Genesis. And so we do so again here. God intends to bring his kingdom into the world through through Abraham's seed. And finally, with much struggle and, and all the ups and downs, Abraham has a seed. It's Isaac. It's not a lot of seed, but it's seed. It's all he has for right now. But you see, the problem with looking through to the future and the promises that are being made is that that seed now needs seed. There needs to be descendants from Isaac for this to work. 
If the people are going to outnumber the, 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 the grains on the shore or the stars in the sky, then we need to get rolling here. And just as any good mother and father desires that their adult children would marry, it does seem that sometimes it feels like the real desire is for grandchildren. Uh, I came across this video and I thought it would be a little humorous, but also help us with our illustration today. It can be hard to know what to get moms for the holidays. That's why we wanted to ask real moms what they actually want. Think you can do that? Well, I should think so. Yeah, I think we can handle that. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's give it a whirl. And action. Okay, moms, what do you want for the holidays? Oh, nothing. I'm not fussy. Don't spend too much. No, really. What would you like? Maybe, no, I don't know. I don't Just know. a small nothing. Seriously, you can be honest. What, what do you really want? Grandchildren. Grandchildren. Okay, sure. But what do you want this year? Grandchildren. Grandchildren. What about something from home goods? Grandchildren. 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 A son for my son. Five grandchildren. I think we've got grandchildren. Maybe we could just branch out. A, a fuzzy blanket to swallow grandchildren. Closer. Um, oh, a cake stand. Hey, there you go. With grandchildren on top. And, um, <laughs> can you just say sweater? Say sweater. Why? Just to have it. Baby sweater. Okay. Um, just sweater. Just baby. Cut. Just a friendly reminder of what Abraham is after. And if Sarah was still alive at this point, most certainly she would have as well. But this is what Abraham needs in order for God's plan to continue. But for now, it seems like the plan keeps Starting and stopping and, and, and hitting all these roadblocks. So what are we to make of all of this? Three points for us to help us break down our passage this morning. And the first point is this, that God's promises require faithful activity. God's promises require faithful activity, verses 1 through 9. Abraham still has responsibility of covenant continuity and continuation. He knows that the covenant cannot stop with him. It must continue on. The way that it continues on is through Isaac and through his seed. So he sends his servant and he makes two requirements of his servant. Two non-negotiables as it relates to finding a wife for Isaac. Isaac must not marry one of the Canaanite women, verse 3. The servant must not go back to Abraham's homeland, verse 6. The servant asks, well, what if, what if she won't come back with me? Verse 7, Abraham displays his faith in his God, in Yahweh. God will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. It's like chapter 22, verse 8. God himself will provide the sacrifice. So the servant can't go back to the land from which Abraham came. And we saw that in chapter 23, about a month ago, when Abraham buried Sarah in Canaan and not back in Ur of the Chaldeans uh, to be buried with their ancestors. This is the land that they were called to. 
God called them out of Ur and into Canaan. And this is where they are now. And he cannot find a wife among the Canaanite women. Abraham understood that a marriage could wreck a covenant relationship. The Canaanites were were a sex-obsessed, sex-perverted culture. And Abraham knows that this will only cause more problems and hindrances for Isaac and the covenant promises. But think for a second about the possibilities here of what they might be turning down. How a marriage between Abraham's son and the daughter of one of the Canaanite leaders would be so attractive. The, the, the alliance would bring this great military strength and great prosperity to the land, would it not? Think of the European dynasties. You know, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, they had nine children, and almost every one of them ended up marrying another royal from Europe. Kingdoms from Prussia to Greece to Russia to Germany all built strength for the British throne. But Abraham knows that a wrong marriage could cause problems for the covenant. Now, the women in Nahor, are, they're not five-point Calvinists. They're not, uh, you know, reciting the Heidelberg Catechism. They're not reciting the Nicene Creed. They are likely polytheistic and recognize Yahweh as a god, But apparently this is not as bad as the Canaanite woman. And we have to remember the context and the culture and everything that's going on here. But it's the the point being that the covenant marriages are crucial at this time to maintain faithfulness to God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that a woman, she's widowed, her husband has died. She is free to marry anyone else, but he must be in the Lord. He must be a believer. He has to be in the covenant family. Holy marriage is crucial if God's people are to continue on. So the question comes, well, what if there is no Rebecca? And what if there is no Isaac? Uh, J. Gresham Machen was a, a Presbyterian scholar He helped uh, start the uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. And in 1920, he was in a relationship with a girl who lived in Boston. The two families had uh, vacationed together growing up in the New New England area. And Machen really liked this girl. She was intelligent. She was beautiful. But she was a Unitarian. And Machen tried as hard as he could to convince her of faith in Christ, but in the end, she could not be persuaded. And so Machen broke it off, and he never married. Now, some people are called to singleness, a a, a very special calling. Uh, We think of John Stott. We think of uh, Dick Lucas in the UK, who I'm writing a a little paper on for one of my classes. But not everyone is. There's countless stories of people who were engaged or in dating relationships, and when the the religion part component came to a, 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 a great 
point of difficulty, those relationships were broken, and that person went and found another believer, and happily ever after, or so to say. But the point here is that covenant promises require faithful activity. Second, God's providence maintains God's promises. God's providence maintains God's promises. This is verses 10 through 61. So the occupying the bulk of our chapter here. The promises are at stake here, are they not? The land, the people. And the question is, how will the promises be maintained? Think with me logically here. If Isaac has no seed, what happens to the promises? They will be unfulfilled. They will end. No seed, no promise. So the answer to how the promises are maintained is by God's providence. God's secret, marvelous, fascinating way of weaving circumstances and events together to support his promises. I want us to pay special attention to the minor characters in this story. The servant of Abraham. He dominates the whole narrative, does he not? Even verses 34 to 49 is just his speech. That's really unusual in narrative genre to have such a long speech. But how good is God to give a servant like this to Abraham, a godly, faithful servant? Verses 12 to 14, he is a model servant. The way he prays at the well, the way he seeks the interest of his master Abraham, the way he worships immediately in verses 26 and 27, everything in this story seems to lean on this servant. That could sometimes be the case in God's dramas and sometimes often is the case. That it's the lesser known character who who carries the story. We don't even know this servant's name. Is he the servant from earlier in Genesis, Eliezer? We don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe Eliezer has died, and this is a new servant. But how often does God use ordinary, no-name people to bring good to you? In Australia, there was a lady who worked at the reception. She was the Um, assistant to the rector as well, and she was one of those people for us. She was unbelievable. She did all of her work so well, and she would bend over backwards to help you in anything. She helped get us settled. She helped uh, uh, help us make introductions to people. She served in any capacity, and she saved my back several times when I'd forgotten to uh, uh, order food for a big uh, event that we were having, and, and she would just Breeze in, fix the problem, and breeze out. Not looking for accolades, not looking for uh, any kind of praise. She may have held the title of reception, but her work and her testimony of service and love emanated through our office and through our church. The God of the Bible is not dependent on the all-stars. He uses the minor characters. Second, under God's providence is the development of God's providence. 
Now, verses 11, there's this uh, situation that's taking place, that it's the, this time of the evening where the, where the young women are coming to, to draw from the well, and then intermix the circumstances with the prayer of the servant in verses 12 and 13. The servant is in town. The women are coming to the well for water. Let's see what happens. Notice that God does not speak in, this, in any of this section. He is referred to, but there's no commands. There's no voice of God here. It's as if he were just in the background of all that's taking place. Then there's this test that is proposed by the servant in verse 14. It's not just a sign, but it's a revelation of the woman's character. That she would not just offer him a drink in showing hospitality, but that she would offer to water his camels, revealing that she is kind and industrious and hardworking. She's not expecting handouts. She's not feel like she's entitled to anything. We don't know for certain, but I think we can rightly assume that this jug that she's carrying around is probably about three gallons. And camels take about 25 gallons of water to be replenished, and there are 10 camels. So she's going up and down from this well about 80 times. This isn't just a little dump here and there and then off. I mean, this is a, this is a major contribution. This is a young lady who will work. She is extremely kind and generous. She is going to be a helpmate, not a hurt mate. I just came up with that. You're welcome to use it, but I would like you to attribute to me. <laughs> then the servant asked her, whose daughter are you? But you see, the writer has already told us in verse 15 that she's related to Abraham, but the servant doesn't find this out until verse 24, that she is exactly from Abraham's family. This is how God's providence works. What is this meant to show us? It's meant to show us the, the twists and the turns of God's providence never ceases. They were certainly happening here. And I think the point is for us, for it to gain our attention to where we can say, is this not like our own story? Is this not like our own experience? All we all have these types of stories of, 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 of God's providence in our lives. How we met someone. How, how we are where we are today, whether it's uh, our work or, or, or our home or our neighborhood. In 1841, Adolf Safir was an 11-year-old Jewish boy who had just converted to profess faith in Christ. Now, if you were to ask him to give his testimony, it would probably be quite a lengthy one. Here's what it may have sounded like. In 1838, the Church of Scotland sent out some missionaries to do some work on how to do evangelism among Jews in the Middle East and in Europe. And so the Church of Scotland sent four men Robert Murray McShane, whose name may sound familiar, 
Andrew Bonar, Dr. Alexander Black, and Dr. Alexander Keefe. While these men were in Egypt, traveling up towards Palestine on camels in the Sinai Desert, Dr. Keefe was hot and he fell asleep on his camel, and then he fell off of his camel. And they didn't think much of the fall at the time, but it turned out to be more serious than they had originally thought. And so Dr. Black and Dr. Keith headed back to Scotland. But contrary to their original plans, they decided to travel back by way of the Danube River, going through what is today Budapest in Hungary. And they ended up staying in Budapest longer than they anticipated because they had both contracted Danube fever. Dr. Keith collapsed in the street and had to be carried to his hotel room in which he was in a coma for six weeks. And Dr. Black couldn't render any aid to him because he also had Danube fever. The Archduchess of the territory, she had been wonderfully brought to faith in the gospel from Roman Catholicism. She heard of their situation and rendered aid to these two men. And then she asked them when they recovered that they would come back and do work among the people, specifically the Jews in Budapest. She had been praying for a long time that God would help her find an opportunity to serve the people of Budapest. And here's this opportunity. So she thinks this might be something. Well, Dr. Keith and Dr. Black go back to their churches in Scotland and tell everybody their story. And so the churches agreed, let's send this man. In 1841, they send this man, Dr. John Duncan, who was an Old Testament professor, for him to go and do work amongst the Jews in Budapest. Now, Hungary at the time was staunch Roman Catholic. And so there's a lot of of difficulty for Dr. Duncan to have a, a Protestant ministry here in this land. But there were English workmen in the city, and they were granted approval to hold English services for these workmen. Well, some of the Jews in the community started to attend these services. One of them was a man named Israel Safir. He was a merchant. He was an educator. He was a scholar. He was the most revered Jew in Hungary. He was a friend of the chief rabbi. He was Mr. Judaism. So he came to these services to really just improve his English speaking, his English proficiency. And he began speaking with Dr. Duncan, and they began to speak about uh, uh, Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah and the fulfillment of Christ, and gradually the light comes on. And he begins to attend these services with great regularity, and with him always he brought this frail 11-year-old boy with him whose name was Adolf Safir, and he too came to faith. So what would Safir say if he was asked to give his testimony? He would have to say, it all started when a Scotsman fell off his camel in the Sinai Desert. Well, Adolf Safir became a Jewish Presbyterian missionary. He wrote theological books, excuse me, and he had a tremendous effect on the country of Hungary and the Reformed Church there. In fact, there's a young man in my preaching program out in California who is a pastor in a Reformed Hungarian church because God used all of these men 
providentially for his purposes. Back to our text. Rebecca is a relative of Abraham. She is not a Canaanite girl. She is not in Ur of the Chaldeans. And she has not only offered the servant a drink, she has offered to water his camels just as he has prayed. And what is his response to all of this? The servant's immediate response was to worship, verses 26 and 27. Our response is not just to look at the providence of God and say, wow, that's really interesting. But to engage in praise and worship in what God has done, God's providence maintains God's promises. Finally, God's provision satisfies his servants. This is verses 20, uh, sorry, 62 through 67. And we come to the end of our narrative. And our climax is found in verse 67. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What, again, what's at stake here? The whole promise and kingdom plan of God. There will be no people of God if Isaac doesn't get a wife and start having children. What do you have here specifically at the end of of 67? You find out that this story isn't only about God's plan, but it's also about human need. Isaac isn't just a cog for God's plan for the world. He's a hurting person for whom God cares. Why does he hurt? Because he misses his mother. This isn't some twisted Sigmund Freud mother lover way. The man has lost his mother who he apparently was very close to. And he has this hole in his life now that she is gone. What does God do about it? He gives Isaac someone to love, a wife, Rebecca, and he loved her. Isn't that beautiful? The simplicity of that statement. What else are you to do for a wife? He loved her. And then he was comforted after the death of his mother. What is so fascinating is not just the meeting of Isaac's need. It's what the text says about God. It's always about God. You do realize that, right? It says, Yahweh is the God of the big plan, which is the bulk of our chapter 24. And he's the God of the individual need. He cared about this hole in Isaac's life. In this, we get a picture of the gospel, do we not? For God so loved the world that he gave and sent his son that whomsoever believes in him may not have death, but 
life eternal. It's the big plan for the world, but it's also the care for the individuals. That is our God. You know, you could walk into a a, a magnificent, beautiful uh, cathedral, and and you could be blown away at at the the height and the breadth and and the majesty, and it conveys to you things uh, with unspoken word. God is big and grand and lofty. Or you could walk into a small congregational church and feel tight and closed and, and intimate. And what does that convey to you? Boy, God feels near. And both of those things are true. So you could walk into the Grand Cathedral and what do people need to hear? They need to hear about the closeness and the proximity and the nearness of God. You could walk into a tight little congregational service and what do you need to hear? That God is working things out on a large spectrum for the whole world. That is our God. Working out his purposes. Working out his plans. Rulers, nations, kingdoms in the, in the palm of his hand but also in what seems like a smaller thing, the work in the life of the individual, in and through people whose names will not be memorialized or in history books. That is our God. When you are among covenant people and you have Yahweh as your God, you are not lost in a massive crowd. God sees his individual servants. Let us pray. Father, for these things we are eternally grateful. Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up on one thing or the other that we can, we can think that you're so distant from us when we crave the nearness of you. Or we can be so self-obsessed and only be thinking about ourselves that we lose sight of the, the, the big picture of what you're doing and yet you are faithful and true to both of these things. That you are nearer than anything else. That, As Bruce has already prayed earlier, Lord, that your spirit is within us. But at the same time, you're working out your purposes around this world. So, Father, as we go out from this place, help us to be reminded that you're working out your plans and your purposes, not just for the nation and the world, but you're working out these things in our own lives as individuals, as families, as a church. Father, help us to remember these things are true. For we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.